From Austin Film Festival, this is On Story, a look inside the creative process from today's leading writers, creators, and filmmakers. I'm your host, Barbara Morgan. John Lee Hancock is a director, writer, and producer. His directing credits include The Rookie, Saving Mr. Banks, and The Highwaymen. As a writer-director, Hancock made The Alamo, The Blind Side, and The Little Things, his neo-noir film starring Denzel Washington, Jared Leto, and Remy Malek. It follows two police officers in pursuit of a serial killer terrorizing Los Angeles in the 1990s. I spoke with Hancock over the phone to discuss The Little Things and the script's 28-year journey to the screen. Clips of The Little Things, courtesy of Warner Brothers and HBO Max. You know him, didn't you? Then you had that one little feeling. But you waved it away. You should have listened to that one little feeling. Just like I'm listening to you now. You can talk to me. I'm all a friend you got. You're not exactly a department favorite. Things probably changed a lot since you left. You still gotta catch him, right? Yeah. Not that much has changed then, right? <laughs> I can assure you all we are taking a 24-7 all-hands-on-deck approach to these cases. You mentioned something about this when we were doing the panel at the festival, and I thought it was really interesting as I started to think about it, about how many people have... I mean, I, the re-envisioning, I think, even Scott Frank had of uh, Queen's Gambit, you know, and in this... It doesn't have to be current, right? A story, great story is a great story. And that thought that you wrote this, nothing happened with it. It was something you clearly were attached to, and then you found a new life for it. So can you, you talk about that thought process, though, as a writer, as you move on to other projects and then realize, well, you know, I put this away, but I'm not done. Yeah, I needed some prodding on, on this one. When I wrote it, I wrote it. I started, I came up with the idea, the original idea. I came up with the idea, I think 1992, and it was part of a blind picture deal with Steven Spielberg and Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And so Warner Brothers, I, I pitched it to Steven and he was doing Schindler's List at the time and said, this movie's just too dark for me to go into a dark world again. And that's understandable. Uh, and then it uh, almost got made several times. I mean, I think Clint was involved for a minute, uh, Warren Beatty for quite, a, for quite a while, Danny DeVito for quite a while, um, you know, before I was directing. Um, this is all in the 90s. Um, and I think that the, the script I finished in 93. Um, but at any rate, um, you know, it was just one of those, was one of those scripts that everybody really liked and that never seemed to quite get made. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I remember an executive told me, we'll make the movie if you'll change the third act and make it less ambiguous. And, okay. uh, and I said, well, that's the whole reason I wrote the script. So yeah, I can't do that. Then I started directing and Mark Johnson, who was always the producer on it, would you know prod me along and say, what about the little things? Now that you're directing, why don't you direct it? And I had little kids and I didn't, I thought it's kind of a dark world to live in for two years. And so I just refused to look at it. And then my kids went off to college and Mark said, you don't have any more excuses. Uh, <laughs> so uh, read it. And I opened it up with some trepidation, hoping that it was going to be halfway decent as you're looking back. It's like looking at a high school yearbook or something, you know, and you see yourself and you go, oh my goodness. But I was very pleased with it. I liked it. And I said, yeah, let's see if we can 
you know, get it going. And I didn't know if Warner Brothers would do it because it's that dreaded kind of mid-range budget adult drama. And there's nobody in spandex and, you know, all that <laughs> stuff flying around. Uh, so went to Warner Brothers and, you know, much to our excitement, they really, they, they hadn't read the script because it was so old that nobody, there was one person, Courtney Valenti, who had read it way back when. Everybody else was new there wow. since, new since 93. So they read the script and really liked it. I mean, I was thinking I was going to have to try to get it in turnaround to take it somewhere else. Uh -huh. um, Netflix had wanted to do another movie after The Highwayman. But uh, Warner Brothers kind of started taking steps toward maybe making it. And they asked me who I wanted in it. And, you know, it didn't take very long to think of Denzel. It didn't really have to be reimagined. I mean, I, I did a quick rewrite on it, but it wasn't as though, it wasn't like with Scott and Godless, for instance. Right. It started out as a feature script and then and then it you know, morphed into something else and found, found, its, you know, found its correct shape in a vessel. And um, this was uh, this was one that was always, you know, going to be a movie. I don't know. And then so it took forever to finally get get started. But once we did, it came together quickly. When I wrote it, it was pre-DNA, uh, pre a lot of forensic stuff. Um, but some of it was breaking news at that time when the script came out. And so you had to explain what was happening at a crime scene a little bit more. But then after that, you know, long after it came like CSI and the first 48 hours and all those kind of things. So now, you know, we're on a weekly basis, we're completely aware of, of forensics and crime scenes and things like that. So thankfully I was able just to strip that out. So that opening scene, that was a hold breath, heart stopping kind of open. So much is revealed in movies anymore to us. Yeah. And I really love that you took us in the mystery and thriller range, you know? So I'd, I'd like to know what you were thinking, especially with, was that your original opening scene? It's funny because it wasn't. We flipped two different scenes. And the reason I put that scene up front was because I had, it was always my intention to kind of embrace the genre of psychological thrillers and mm -hmm. cops chasing killers and those kind of things. Embrace the genre as something familiar but also was trying to, wanted to ultimately subvert it somehow mm -hmm. and not have a formulaic third act, which I think a lot of movies in the 80s that were uh, in that genre had it, the first two acts were really, really interesting. And then you get to the third act and you discover who the bad guy is. And then the good guy chases him. And there's usually an action set piece and there's a lot of gunfire. And then it seems like the bad guy's not gonna, not gonna win, but then he does so heroically. And I thought that was always the least interesting part of those movies to me. So yeah, I wanted to put that up front. say I know what kind of movie I'm in and mm -hmm. I, I like I like these kinds of movies if you like those kinds of movies also I think the fact that it doesn't that first scene doesn't end the way you think it's going to is a little bit of a, a I wouldn't say warning but it's a little bit of a tip of the hat to this movie's going to go places that are 
that are not formulaic. Yeah, it was, it was you know, a poser. I mean, the whole time I'm in the, I, I really enjoy something where it, we're not assuming everything and you're mm-hmm. asking yourself questions. Is that what I just saw? Was that, you know, you're trying to piece it together. You know, it's a, from an entertainment perspective, it's a wonderful thing. And, and I think you really pull it off beautifully in here. Also, uh, after I watched it, the Netflix thing pops up. Not It's not on Netflix, but The Night Stalker pops up. And I watched that right after watching your film. Big mistake. <laughs> big, big, big mistake. Because then I'm checking every window in my house, <laughs> thinking, what the hell was I thinking? And so it was a good thing that I did that, because what it did was sort of connect me to a completely different time, again, where you have somebody who's a character very much like the person you have in your film, who has some level of attraction you know, I don't mean that in a mm-hmm. positive way, but you created some characters in here who are very complex and we don't get to know them really completely. You kind of unfold bits and pieces of these folks and then you intertwine them. And I think that's a really uh, interesting way of handing us character development for other guys through a third person, this sort of third character you've thrown in, which is, again, not traditional for this genre that you were writing, right? It's usually the cat and mouse. And in this, it's a, I'm not sure who's the cat and who's the mouse and which the third one is, you know? So can you talk about what, why, why you made this a relational uh, film that way? I always thought of Albert Sparma, played, you know, I think beautifully by Jared Lotto, as kind of a Rorschach, not only for Baxter and Deacon, but for the audience. There are people that when, when you would see Jared, when we would be on set, uh, Jared in completely in character and nobody knew who he was, would sometimes walk over into a group of people and just try to be nice to them and say, what a beautiful day or something. And the reactions to him were, you know, this is an odd dude. I don't think I want to be on the same side of the street as him. And he wasn't trying to be menacing. He was trying to be very sweet. I invoke my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Just kidding. You should see the look on your faces. Come on, it's hilarious. But I would like my rights waiver card. I know I'm not officially in custody, but better be safe than sorry, huh, guys? Hot damn. This is awesome. Can I keep this? No, I'm afraid not. No fun. Hey, you wanna know something? Ernesto Miranda was actually guilty. So I think that there's a certain there are a certain number of people who are gonna say, I don't care what happens to him, he doesn't matter. He's outside the box. Mm-hmm. He's odd, he's not normal, he gives me the creeps, whatever. But what does that mean? What what do you deserve to have happen to you? So I think both these guys, when they fixate on a suspect, and that happens sometimes with police, they put blinders on and just go after one person. And they both need this so badly that they project their obsession and their need in some way is onto Jared Mm -hmm. as just the goal. Mm -hmm. And so I think it it makes the stakes that much higher for them um, and it makes their journey kind of unravel quickly. 
I love that you left the third act the way you left it. And I'm glad you did. I'm glad you, you know, decided to wait and make the movie you made. We're in that movie (laughs) halfway through. And I said to my daughter, I think Jared Leto is supposed to be in this movie. And I did not realize that was him (laughs) because he was so, he embodied that guy. It's transformative. I mean, he, you know, we talked about it early on and we didn't want to go too far with it, but you know, we widened the bridge of his nose a little bit, gave him uh, some acne scars, slightly different teeth uh, and different color eyes. And then, you know, that, that's his hair and everything. We just greased it up a little bit. But he's he's a transformative actor. He loves to go to those places. I mean, I spent a lot of time with Denzel in prep, a lot of time with Romney in prep, and a lot of time with Jared in prep. But I did Jared separately. With those two guys, I could be in a room with, with Baxter and Deacon and we talk about the script and do everything, but we made a conscious decision to not have uh, Jared come in and be buddy-buddy with Denzel and Rami and talk about the script and read through it and all that stuff. So the very first time that Denzel sees Sparma, he's seeing Sparma. I mean, and they're seeing, and he's seeing Joe Deacon. And so when he comes down those steps and he shines a flashlight on him, that is the first time that he saw um, Jared as Albert. Can I help you? I saw the for sale sign. That was for another car. Got a lot of miles on it. You a, you a salesman? No. How's the trunk space? Standard. Mind if I take a look? I'm in the market. It's not for sale. All I need to do is take a look. You must really like my car. I do. (laughs) There's a couple of scenes in here that I just think are brilliant as far as character development. And that first Uh moment in the appliance store or whatever, it was just this moment that told you so much about both those characters. And... The moment where right after you meet Deke in the beginning and then get to Mm -hmm. his house where his you see him talking to somebody, you know, and it's his dog walking up and just that moment exchange. And then that scene with his ex-wife on the lawn of his former house. And I just like the opening, the first intro between Sparma and Deke. I just like to hear how from a director's perspective, after all those years, you know, of making all these great movies, that you can take moments like that and recognize how you can tell us a lot about character without going into a much deeper explanation, you know? Yeah, I mean, part of it is having great actors, to be honest. You're going to watch them more carefully. You're going to wonder what they're thinking. So when Joe Deacon goes into the second appliance store, we don't know exactly what's up, but we know that he smells a rat. We can tell that he's suspicious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of enough for us. He's now, he's become a detective again. Uh, he shows his badge. He's cocky. He's cockier than he was at the very start of the movie when mm-hmm. he was a lowly dep out in Kern County. Mm-hmm. We see him get some of his bravado back. And so I, I, I think that, you know, Denzel does a great job in, in that scene. And I think that the scene with his wife, I didn't want to override it because we, we knew that he had, we had heard from Terry Kenny's character, Captain Ferris, that, that Deke had had, uh, you know, a suspension, a heart attack and a divorce all in six months. Mm-hmm. He was a rush hour train wreck. 
<laughs> so we know that about him. And so when he goes to visit Baxter for breakfast and sees Bra uh, Baxter's children, there's something in that. And then the cut directly to, I mean, we don't need to explain, well, I'm, I'm in the neighborhood. But I had to go by and see my old family, you know, mm -hmm. but it's kind of in the sinew of it a little bit. You can see how he looks at the little at Baxter's little girl. And, you, and he says, you know, my girl, I got two girls. They're all grown up now. But he longs for that a little bit. And I thought this is the one peak we get at what Joe Deacon was like before mm -hmm. when Joe Deacon was happy. And I think you pull up to that sweet little house. Glad you kept it. Long, too. Yeah, well, Tom's a, he's a whiz in the yard. Better than me. Well, you never really had time for that kind of thing. How the girls? Good. Good. You ought to give them a call. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I should. You all right? You know me. Yeah. I know you. And you look at it, and then when you realize, and he says, I'm glad you kept it, you realize, you know, this is his ex-wife, and this was the house they lived in. And it just, it's, it's a little tiny scene, and they don't say much, but they say a lot. And going back to one of your earlier uh, questions, you know, you, you make the movies that get made. Mm -hmm. You know, people have said, wow, this is a very different movie for you. And I go, well, actually, I've got lots of scripts that are, you know, probably almost this dark. It just didn't get made. So, I mean, that I think are very good. But, you know, you, you make the movie that gets, that gets made. And so this is a part of, you know, this story is a part of me, just the same as, you know, other things I've written, you know, or other things I've directed. You know, we all have different aspects to ourselves. You know, I could see how it would be tough living in this world. That guy, they were, that's a creepy, creepy storyline, a creepy character. It's such great kind of, you know, it was almost like a 30s or 40s, you know, Cornell Woolrich story. You know, it, it really felt dark and psychological and kind of content we're not used to getting anymore. I agree. And, and I think it was probably... I think that's why it's another good, another reason why it's a good thing that it took so long. You know, one, we got the best possible cast, mm -hmm. but two, it feels like a movie in some ways from a different time. And I hope that's not a bad thing for me. It's a very good thing. And, and some of the responses I've gotten have said just that, that I didn't know how much I real, I, I didn't realize how much I missed these kinds of movies. On Story is part of a growing number of programs in Austin Film Festival's On Story Project, including the On Story PBS series, radio program, podcast, book series, and archive, accessible through the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University. To find out more about On Story and Austin Film Festival, visit onstory.tv or austinfilmfestival.com. On Story is brought to you in part by the Alice Kleberg Reynolds Foundation, a Texas family providing innovative funding since 1979. This project is supported in part by the Cultural Arts Division of the City of Austin Economic Development Department, the Texas Commission on the Arts, the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, and the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. This program is also made possible in part by a grant from Humanities Texas, the state affiliate for the National Endowment for the Humanities. Austin Film Festival's On Story is supported in 
part by Final Draft, industry standard screenwriting software. Find out more information about Final Draft at finaldraft.com. This podcast is supported in part by Two Farm Media, immersive story experience by Rich Shapiro. The show is produced by myself, Barbara Morgan, and Katie Turner. Our associate producers are Colin Heyer and Maya Perez. Our editors are Jamal Knox and Travis Neely. Audio captured by Travis Kennedy. Music is by Brian Ramos. Production assistance comes from Sound Lab Inc., Travis Kennedy, and KUT 90.5 in Austin. Go to austinfilmfestival.com to find out more about the Austin Film Festival and Conference each October. Until next time, I'm Barbara Morgan, and this has been Austin Film Festival's On Story.